Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast. We've got a treat for you today. It's Chris Walker, CEO and founder of Refine Labs and B2B marketing expert. And feel free to stick around for the post-pod discussion with V and Mark. Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast, a place for business leaders to get the best and most credible information on marketing, strategy, and innovation. Your hosts, Mark Binkley and Vasily Douros, share their experiences as they gather insights from the world's leading experts. Now, on with the show. Chris Walker is the founder and CEO of Refine Labs, a progressive demand generation firm that challenges the status quo in B2B marketing. He's also the host of his own podcast, The State of Demand Gen. Today, we're going to cover three main themes, demand and lead generation, the influence content can have in each of those states, and finally covering Chris's favorite topics, attribution and measurement. Chris also holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Computer Engineering and Biomedical Engineering from Worcester. Did I even say that right? Worcester Polytech. Yeah, you got it right. There it is. Worcester Polytech. And people people, people think in. it's like ITT tech, but it's actually like a super good engineering school. Yeah. But in no one in New England, no one outside of New England knows what it is. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, and it's actually those tail perfectly into the first question is, you know, how did how did that degree help you in uh, in your career, if you will? So I think an engineering or a STEM uh, degree is super helpful uh, in marketing and in my career because of the way that it allows you to think. And so it taught me how to systematically challenge assumptions in a methodical way to understand whether what other people are telling you to do is true or not. Um, and so as you notice in my behavior in marketing and how it comes through in my content, uh, a lot of people just take whatever they read, right? Um, you know, follow up in five minutes and then you'll you close 9x more likely to close your leads. And they're just like, take that study. And they're like, okay, I guess we should follow up faster or whatever. Um, and if you actually look into the details of how the studies are done, then you start to see, oh, like they were they were calling the people in this industry and these types of people. These were the people that were actually right. making the calls. This was the deal yeah. size of what, what they were calling for. And you're like, oh, I guess this study really isn't relevant to my business, actually, so I shouldn't listen to it. Um, and so challenging assumptions, I think, has been a, a key driver. And then just the way that uh, engineering and uh, electrical computer engineering challenges you to think is basically at a big systems level. So I think I think in marketing and in B2B companies generally, most people look at their little piece of the system, not looking at the whole thing. Revenue operations was supposed to sort of help people broaden their view and see across the whole revenue cycle. Uh, un- unfortunately, I haven't seen that come to fruition in most organizations. I still find it to be a siloed function and, and still look at them in individual pieces, not at the whole. And when you look at it at the whole, you start to look at, like, oh, it isn't our like it isn't our sales processes problem that the marketing leads aren't closing. It's that the people the people that marketing is bringing to us do not have buying intent, and that's why they're not co- coming through. So we need to fix marketing, not sales. Or looking at why like certain pe- certain types of buyers that come through certain sources close to revenue at a significantly faster speed and a significantly higher rate because of the intent that they have. And so I just think that people haven't looked that deeply into the system to understand those nuances like I have. And I look forward to sharing them, the, the things that I've learned with more people. I, I have a question for, uh, for you. I mean, kind of thinking about systems thinking and, and um, I also took science, which is, you know, the natural path to progression for all markets <laughs> in university. 
And but the one thing is funny about that systems thinking is you get so focused that like if you're not in systems thinking and you're driven by revenue, you see it's almost like that everything if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So mm -hmm. like I think a lot of marketing is set up to be very focused and, and only sort of count, quote unquote, lead gen. So, but you've got a different approach. And, and so if, could you help us understand the difference between lead gen and demand gen just, like, just as a level set? Yeah. So let's look back in history. Let's look back in history in 2014. I was a B2B marketer at that time. At that point, most B2B companies were not using a tool like Zoom Info or, or another contact database because they, did, they were not accessible. Um, there, most people were not using LinkedIn. So sales reps didn't have the ability to access contact information and contact buyers directly. Therefore, marketing's job was to collect contact information so that their sales team could try to do sales to people that don't want to buy right now. With that, at the same time, because of the state of the internet and the state of B2B companies and buying generally, there was not an abundance of information, uh, access to peers, review sites like G2, information on websites, transparent pricing, all these other things that would allow B2B buyers to buy independently. Both those things put together meant that marketing was supposed to collect contact information and then sales needed to take a buyer that didn't want to buy and create demand one-to-one -to, -one to help them figure out that they needed to buy. Now, seven or eight years later, there's an abundance of information on the internet. B2B buyers want to do most of the buying process on their own. They want to use things like access and communities to understand what their peers are doing, word of mouth with people that they trust, review sites, um, any other types of tools and things that people will use to actually social media to actually collect information, prioritize business problems, and then actually go out and solve them. And because of that shift in how buyers buy, marketing and the the evolution of contact availability on LinkedIn, social media, Zoom infos, and those types of things that sales no longer needs marketing to generate contact information in order to do sales. Mm -hmm. So sales could go and source their own contact information, whether it's through Zoom info or a combination of Zoom info with intent data and do sales. And then marketing could actually in transition from collecting email addresses and phone numbers to creating demand in the market, which matches how B2B buyers want to buy today. And so the sh that's the big kind of shift that's happened. If you look at lead gen versus demand gen, lead gen is I'm trying to collect contact information so that my sales team can try to do sales to people that don't want to buy right now. And demand generation is I'm trying to create a an affinity and a desire in this type of account or buyer to consider using or using my product, solving the business priorities, the problem that we solve um, and wanting to come to us when they're ready to buy. And so it's about uh, thinking about marketing, about creating a desire in the buyer to actually solve what you're doing, not just collect their email address. And when you think about it differently, basically the entire execution of marketing changes. Um, and so I think that marketing generally has, is still stuck in the place where, oh, we think that our job is to collect contact information for sales when what they're doing is collecting email addresses on LinkedIn ads for $100 a piece when their sales team could get the same exact information on Zoom Info for $0.65 cents and just a complete waste of time and money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is, is demand gen, do you see it as uh, distinctly different from, say, brand building? Or is that, are you like, are they almost interchangeable? I think that most people 
see them as different things because of historical or preconceived assumptions about what those two things mean. I don't see them as differently. I see them as both accomplishing the exact same outcome, brand and demand converge. Most people see them differently in two polar opposites where demand gen is actually just lead gen. So performance marketing, like just what we talked about, let's collect as many email addresses as we can and optimize for how much it costs us to get a phone number or an email address. And then brand building is like building a trade show booth, running display ads, doing all these things that are difficult to measure and usually don't drive results. Things that were used to build brand 20 years ago or 10, 20 years ago that are less effective at doing that today. And we have this divergence in what the way that most people think. And I think if you actually had them converge, then you would mm-hmm. actually, you would get a much better outcome and a much better product in, in what you deliver. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like fusing. I'm trying to get this a little bit deeper, like how most people think about brand, which would be like, um, long, long-term focus, non-conversion based things like that, but then combining and, and oftentimes with brand, not deeply connected to the category or the business problem that you're solving for the sake of thought leadership. Right. Um, and then combining it with, we could use paid distribution to deliver information about our category, our product, the customers that are having success with that type put it together in both paid and organic channels with a content strategy to actually drive market demand. And that's what I'm, I'm that's what I'm telling people to think about. I think that when you look at org structures that have a, a VP of brand and a VP of demand, that it would actually, you would get a much better result having one owner own both of those functions. Mm-hmm. I love what you just said there, Chris, <clears throat> the org structures and whatnot become so fundamental, fundamentally important in, um, in the, the proper running, if you will, of an organization. But the fact is, I think more companies have, like you said, you have a brand on the one side, but then on the other side, you have performance marketing, if you want to call it that. And it creates the schism at times in organizations because there's still not one view on how to do demand gen or making sure you're pumping out content that kind of creates that affinity to a product or service or whatever the case may be. I'd love for you to kind of dive into and and just kind of help share some of your knowledge. And what is that opportunity that you've been able to identify now in that B2B space that is potentially like you're opening up this door of uh, educating individuals a lot more on this whole, you know, demand funnel, call it what you want. Mm -hmm. It's just fascinating to see like a lot of your content that you pump out really focuses on that and, and, and really challenges people to think about demand gen or lead gen a lot differently than maybe historically it did in the uh, B2B space. Mm -hmm. I I think generally people don't respect how much different a B2B buyer want the way that they buy today than just three years ago. And most companies operate in the way that B2B buyers bought 10 years ago. And so just the lack of acknowledgement and awareness of where people are and what they want to do I think is the root cause. In 2017, I ran a survey. We were selling to large hospitals. There was 5,000 hospitals in the country, emergency medicine physicians, respiratory directors, ICU intensivists, like knowledgeable, deep clinicians and physicians. And what we found about how they wanted to buy was, was enlightening and completely changed my career about when they actually want to engage with a sales rep in their buying process, what sources of information they trust, where they look as their first and second steps before they want to talk to sales. And if you actually did that exercise with your buyer, 
you'd find that the results that I got are pretty much exactly the same as what the results you get, right? Maybe emergency medicine physicians are on Twitter and your buyer is on Instagram or LinkedIn, but it's the nuances are different, but the global behavior of how people want to buy things in B2B has shifted. And I think that marketers don't recognize the amount of power that it creates if you're able to acknowledge that and harness it and go out and do something about it. And because like 10 years ago, the only way to reach your buyers as a B2B marketer, and you could even go five years ago, was to figure out some way to collect their e- to, for them to give you their email address so that you could send them through automated nurture flows. Or you hope that when you build your booth at the conference that the people stumble by it and find it. Mm-hmm. Like, or you need to go and find the people that host the conferences and see if they'll allow you to sponsor their webinar or put your like little, put your something in their email that they send to their database because marketers didn't have direct access to go out and get to go and communicate with customers on their own. Mm-hmm. And now what I'm trying to help people understand in the power is that there's no, you don't need a middleman anymore. You don't need the conference. You don't need the trade publication. You don't need your sales team. You don't need any of those things for marketers to go out and communicate directly with customers every single day to educate people on the things that matter about their product, their category, and things like that, that get people way more closer to buying in a way that aligns with how they want to buy. Um, And there's just, so there's so much power in acknowledging that reality. Um, And so I'm trying, I don't think that maybe I've never said it that clearly before, but that's really what it is. And so when I think about marketing and the way that I've thought about it for the past five, maybe six years now, is that I have the ability to open direct lines of communication with my customer and talk to them every single day at scale. Mm -hmm. And if you do that correctly over a six, 12, 18, 24 month period of time with consistency, with strategy, with customer focus, Mm -hmm. with the right like metrics and behavior, you can fundamentally move how an entire market thinks. You can change how people think because if you're a B2B company and you have a clear value proposition, you shouldn't need to trick people into sitting on a demo with your sales team. You should just be able to tell them the truth of what's happening in reality and let them acknowledge them as fun, like business professionals and adults to figure it out on their own that this would be a good decision to have. And so I just think about as marketers ditching the gimmicks no more gift cards to sit on demos, no more of this bullshit, and to focus on educating buyers like an adult. Yeah. It's a complicated process, like far more than in B2C, like buying a chocolate bar, you can go through a checkout aisle at any grocery store, just pick up a chocolate bar. That's from trigger to moment of purchase in a second, right? Mm-hmm. In B2B, you've got, you know, the long, hard slog. If you look at Gartner, they've got like this, crazy complicated thing sometimes it takes years for these sales to go through that involve multiple stakeholders so it's a different process i would say i mean some of the fundamental things of in marketing are the same but um before you even get to like putting a message in the market how do you know who like are you picking just one buyer or are you looking at the decision making unit as the buyer or and does your com- content change based on that yeah, I would argue that uh, considered purchases in B2C have the exact same type of flow and can take years to develop, like buying a home, buying a car, 
things like that. There's a lot of nuances if you look deeply in all of the yeah. different points of, before you actually make that decision. And those decisions, the thing in B2B that's different than a chocolate bar is once you make the decision, you have to actually go and implement it. And it's hard to change back. Chocolate bar, you mm-hmm. can just like throw it out if you don't like it. You know what totally. I mean? Um, totally. And so uh, what was the question one more time? More just like... Are you picking a like oh let's yeah say the yeah IT buyer or the procurement person the department or the decision making unit the, the yeah department. I mean decision making units a good way an interesting way to look at it but I think about it even more broadly like that like if you're selling a tool that gets used by the finance department in companies you should be marketing to the finance department not just the CFO and the VP of finance and the controller um, there's tons of influence right. that people have as a uh, you know financial admin that does accounts receivable or an FP&A manager of their ability to consume content, do research, share important information with executives, move things forward um, that most people are like, oh, it's a manager. We don't want to target them. I think people just are very short-sighted because they still approach things like it's the, like it's lead gen mode. Yes, you don't want to run lead gen and set up a meeting with your sales team with an FP&A manager that doesn't want to buy. But if you're creating demand and you have a demand mindset, you do want that FP&A manager because they are in the trenches experiencing the pain points that your product solves. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's just a, like you get, there's a mind shift here about how to do it. So we're typically marketing to the department, or if it's like sometimes gets used by RevOps, then you're in RevOps sales, marketing, potentially customer success, and you go more broad. It, there's nuances about who, like what types of companies, the ACV deal side, like things like that, that can impact that. But we're typically targeting more broadly than how people do it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So, well, I'm, I want to circle back on something you just said. And it actually, when I, when we were doing research, you, you were quoted in saying um, marketers are doing marketing that they know would never work on themselves. And you just touched on the, on the fact that <clears throat> organizations need to be focusing more on educating the buyers and treating them like, or communicating them like adults. And I, I can sense a theme here. And you know what's what's interesting to us is when when we when we came across that that quote there, do you believe that is a a byproduct of reporting structures or not letting marketers be marketers, or do you fundamentally believe potentially that marketers are stuck in this endless loop of of um, of maybe not going far enough or not doing enough research um, when they're trying to target um, you know the various departments, if you will. Because there's a huge ecosystem of analyst firms and technology vendors and ad platforms, and all of them want you to keep thinking the same way because it's highly profitable for you to think that way, right? Like, think about the things that B2B marketers spend money on right now. Uh, Contents, and then think about whether or not you've ever either done this or bought afterwards. Content syndication, I go to some third-party website, like pure B2B and download some gated ebook and then a different SDR from some random company calls you and you buy, there's no fucking way that's happening. And the companies run that every day to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, millions for big enterprise companies. Companies spend tons of money on display ads. When's the last time that you went to news.com and clicked on a banner ad and bought something? Never. Most people never even see them. It's proven. When's the last time that you went to a trade show booth, hadn't discovered the company, did not intend to buy before you got there, and then actually stumbled upon their booth and actually bought something later? Almost never. And I could go on a list of all of the other things that B2B companies do 
run lead LinkedIn lead gen. So you download some type piece of content on LinkedIn and then get cold called or emailed. And all of a sudden you buy a hundred thousand dollar software product. No, it never happens. And so all the things that marketers do truly would never work on themselves. Um, and so it's just so, it's so fascinating. And then all I do is I talk to people about how they actually buy things, whether that's through large scale surveys, qualitative research, like we did for the first couple of minutes before we got on this podcast and you get the real stuff. Where are people discovering you? Where are they actually consuming information? How are they, how do they figure out that like Chris Walker exists? Where, where'd that happen? Um, and so there's just, it just comes back to a complete disconnection between what buyers are doing and what the, what the best practices are telling you to do. And I feel like so a lot of people think about my views as contrarian. And I'm like, this, this shit's obvious. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't contrarian. I'm, I'm calling out things that clearly are no longer working in the world that nobody else has the the position. No one else is in the right position to actually call them out. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So it's interesting because if you're saying, I mean, I, 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 I totally completely understand where you're coming from. And I, believe you because i see it and i do it and you know um even the things that i do sometimes as a marketer i i know why well, I, I don't want to believe they're wrong but i just <laughs> i look at best practice and go well it's best practice at least i can defend myself yeah yeah and that's pretty much what it is you know what i mean and the yeah. thing is that the people that give you the advice fall into a couple of buckets the people that give the advice on where the best practices come from either are giving you the, the advice and never execute in real life, mm-hmm. analyst firms, consulting firms, things like that. So they put up a nice theoretical, beautiful diagram that you can put in your PowerPoint slide, and then you spend six months implementing it, and it completely crashes and burns because no one's tested it in reality, and it breaks down. That comes from vendors that teach you to measure or do marketing in certain ways that, that make you or want you to use the software tool. Think about yeah. marketing automation and how much email nurtures still exist today because of how marketing automation vendors taught you to do SEO, capture an email address, push yeah. you through email nurtures. Like, And there needs to be at some point in the world a firm or a source of information that is more objective that can give marketers real best practices that are based on data that's built inside of Salesforce, that's built upon yeah. actually doing it. Um, and I just don't... Uh, I think that we're at Refine Labs working on being well positioned to be that firm. So it's not like we're yeah. totally against technology. It's not like everything that Gartner says is wrong, right? That's totally not true. But mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of misinformation. And I think that people do not recognize the negative impact that happens to their organization with the amount of misinformation that they get. Because then you go yeah. and you make the wrong investments, you make the wrong hires, you make the wrong you know, decisions about what to do then you have an opportunity cost when you do the wrong things. Um, and so just trying to help people see things more objectively. Well, when we were first t- talking, we were chatting about strategy and it, it, I think this is a good point to bring it up is you have these teams of people doing things that are, as you said, not working on themselves. So why keep doing it? But so it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect and then the technology part and the influence of technology on dictating strategy. And then the execution, I think, is something you've talked about um, a lot. I'd love to hear your take on this because it, it's, I see this as like, you know, Google doesn't have your answer for how you're going to best run your business, nor does Salesforce, nor does HubSpot, mm-hmm. nor does name the technology. But it seems like because all the metrics are there, we're playing a lot of times to the metrics and not 
to the business results. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Or how would you, how, what's your take on that? Yeah. Good example is all the companies that are, are pumped. It's so funny. Some of our customers even do it. It makes me laugh. Um, where we're over there running Google ads properly the way it's supposed to be run. And then a Google ad rep will call them from wherever their place is based, Mountain That's View or whatever. True. They'll call them and be like, hey, have you looked at your account? We have all these recommendations for you. You could actually increase yeah. your budget by like 400%. And they're like, oh my God, there, we, could, we could increase our budget from $50,000 a month to $250,000 a month. No way. Why isn't Refine Labs doing this for us? And then you look. And all the suggestions are they're only built to help you waste more money. Um, and then on the right. back end, they, they set up metrics, whether that's 30 second time on site, um, some type of like low intent conversion, like an ebook download, um, clicks, impression share, all these vanity metrics that make marketers feel comfortable wasting another $200,000 a month. And so uh, I have another one. I guess it's analyst firms. You have actual MarTech vendors, and then you have ad platforms and those three things are where the best practices come from. Um, and all of them build metrics and measurement, and they teach you how to measure marketing in a certain way that aligns perfectly with what their product or platform does. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where you get, uh, that's where vanity metrics get created. All the things that you see in ad platforms that marketers obsess about, like clicks or click through rate or things like that that don't matter. Um, MQAs is a new one from ABM platforms, which is basically how many accounts hit your website. And there's a lot of ways to get people on your website that don't want to buy. Um, so there's, there's elements of, yeah. of that. Um, and I've just, the way that I figured this stuff out is that I worked in a company that only cared about how much mark, how much revenue does marketing produce? If marketing, if you want to scale your marketing programs, show me how much revenue you produce. And when you get challenged to go out and show revenue, and then you start doing some of the things that most marketers do as best practices, and you get measured against revenue, not against vanity metrics, and you get measured against sourced revenue that the sales team wasn't going to get without you, not influenced revenue that they were going to get, and you're just taking attribution credit. And when you get measured on sourced revenue, then you know whether or not your shit actually works. Because that stuff doesn't happen by accident. And if, it's, if you're going to grow it every quarter, it definitely doesn't happen by accident. And so, and I got challenged to figure out how to do that. So I did a lot of the things that marketers currently do, like, you know, run ads, gate content, put people through email nurtures, and then look back six months later or 12 months later and be like, wow, we did all that. We closed one deal for 30K ARR. Like, this is not going to, this is not going to be how I'm going to scale marketing to millions of dollars of budget yeah. right now. So I'm going to go and have to figure out something else to do, which led me to like the whole thesis about if you ungate, if you have a strong value proposition and message, if you understand customers well, then you should just put out the information to places where they see it because if they consume it, they'll be more likely to have affinity to buy what you're selling. Um, and so if you, if marketers simply were challenged to defend their budget to a six month payback, six to 12 month marketing payback against marketing source revenue, it would deem most marketing programs failures. And it would force you to look at it deeply and be like, wow, I think we meet, I think we need a new strategy because the way that we're doing, the way that we're measuring marketing, the way that we're thinking about it, and the way that we're executing it are not meeting basic goals and targets that we need to continue to be successful. And I think that's the sort of like the, the realization that a lot of, of executives that lead companies need to make with their marketing team. Because a lot of times like... Um, a lot of times it's not the it's not all the marketing team's fault. 
a lot of times people get boxed in and handcuffed and I've been in this position. So I know it deeply as a marketer where like, I knew that there were better things to do. I would have driven more results, but the company wouldn't let you because they put up artificial boxes based on the best practices. So that only, well, the only thing that you can do is collect leads because other than that, if you don't get your 600 leads, whatever money for $30 a lead or whatever dumb shit people come up with, then you're going to get fired. And, and so I think that, um, like not being a marketer that doesn't work in those companies is priority number one right now. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really interesting, Chris. And, you know, when I, when I look at, even in my, uh, my history, if you will, of uh, different roles that I've taken on, one thing that organizations fail at is really kind of looking, what is that cost per acquisition for the company for every lead, for every revenue that's generated? Because you have so many different cost centers or budgets in an organization that they kind of go off and they do their own thing. We were talking about earlier, you know, the, the difference between brand, if you will, and demand generation. You have the brand team doing brand things, right? Then you have the performance marketing team doing all the performance marketing things. But let's look at that holistically. Like you have over, at times, over $3 million in the market. How did that $3 million actually drive the revenue in that moment? But no one's actually looking at that. And I find that fascinating. I'm cracking up while you ask this question because... This whole mindset, again, comes from 2014, direct response, linear buying journey, simple attribution that was told, that you were taught to do by marketing automation vendors in 2014, and you're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why you're looking at how does, like, why doesn't the brand team have attribution on their podcast? I guess this stuff isn't working. We might as well just move on, right? Why don't our LinkedIn ads have attribution? Like we should go back, let's go back to running lead gen where we got $50 leads that never bought because right now we're just, we don't have, you know what I mean? There's no attribution. Um, And so what people need to get over at this point is to acknowledge that the tools that you use to measure marketing right now that you wait a hundred percent, AKA software is not correct. Is not seeing most of what's actually happening in the world. It's missing word of mouth, communities, organic social, third-party events, content platforms, podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Te- direct text messages. There's a million things that are being missed right now, all of which are the things that actually make the impact, what we call dark social. And so the only reasonable way to measure the performance of marketing today is to look at holistic results across all programs. Holistic results against all programs. We spent $3 million in marketing last quarter. We generated one point, or I'll just do for sake of round numbers, we generated $2 million in net new revenue in period, customer acquisition cost payback period is uh, whatever that is. 1.5, I don't know. <laughs> I'm losing track of my thing. Uh, three, three million in revenue, three, three million in revenue, three, three million yeah. in spend, uh, one-to-one uh, CAC payback period, which is acceptable for most growth stage companies. So then you have some type of baseline about what you're doing. And then from there, you can look at what are the programs that we have direct measurement on? Okay, over here, we have events. Events generated 600K. Events are pr- in in this method, pretty simple to measure with the way that we do it right now. So we spent whatever, a million dollars on events. We got 600K in over here. Through our website, we got this amount. In our web, in our website, the website is actually a catch-all blend because that's where buyers go when they want to buy. So that could have been impacted by 
a billboard. It could have been impacted by a podcast. It could have been impacted by an outbound SDR email nine months ago that then got someone triggered to think about something and then they came back or any of the other things. And most likely a huge combination of them that you'll never measure. And so um, looking at marketing holistically against actual results is the only reasonable way to measure marketing today. Otherwise, you're boxing yourself in. Um, and so I'm just trying to help. Yeah. Like I'm, I am just trying to help people understand that if you if you, the the thing that holds back marketing teams is not creativity, is not the ability to execute. There's plenty of talented marketing people that work on every team that could do great things, but they can't because of how companies set up their marketing measurement. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that, I mean, it sounds like there's a miss almost in, in that like the brand or demand gen strategy isn't matching the tactical lead gen strategy. And, and probably moreover, maybe it's not connecting to operations and, and sales and who, whoever else that is part of the organization, product development, the product roadmap team, like, how do you how do you see strategy? Is it is it part of the systems thinking thing that we started talking about at the beginning, or are you looking at it by vertical, or is it a combination of both? I I, I consider my, myself a strategist, a business strategist that recognizes that marketing is the best way to get things done in business today, marketing and product. And so um, I am not. I don't. You know what I mean? I'm a marketer because I realized seven years ago that marketing is going to be the most important thing to grow a business, not because, oh, I want like being a marketer was cool or I wanted to do things on social media. It's because it drives business results in the most effective way. Um, and so I've been challenging people to think because the places where I came from and the places where I learned a lot of my foundational skills, think about strategy quite a bit differently than how the companies I interact with now do. Um, where in most cases, marketing is synonymous with strategy. Marketing owns pro product roadmap. Marketing owns pricing strategy. Marketing owns distribution and go-to-market strategy. And marketing owns the entire promotion plan. And when you look at SaaS tech companies, marketing owns promotion. It's basically Marcom or lead gen, however you want to look at it. And that's a fundamental gap because what happens is that marketing owns the promotion plan, sales owns the go-to-market plan, um, product owns the product roadmap, finance owns the pricing strategy. None of them are cohesive, or none of them are cohesive. None of them are based on like true co um, holistic customer insights. They're all based in little silos, and you get a disjointed or disconnected strategy. Um, and what I found is that the way that it really starts to work is when you have one strategist that understands the whole thing and puts together a strategy that the entire company can execute. Um, and so I've been challenging people to, to think about that type of thing differently. It doesn't need to be a marketer. I'm not over here sitting saying that every CMO is capable of doing what I just said. I would say that many are not. Um, but finding someone that truly understands how to understand customers and how to put together a business strategy that positions you to win, I think is something that... Uh, that a lot of companies could could use and would benefit from. Mm -hmm. Holistic strategy, yeah, holistic, that makes holistic measurement, all these things become like a, um, if you will, like the, the red line that's kind of creating or 
uh, that common thread story, I think is the best way to kind of look at this. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked on metrics and I think it's important that we, you know, you mentioned vanity metrics twice. And it's great because we had that as a, as a question. And I'll be honest, the, one of your pods that I was listening to, you talked about vanity metrics. I'm like, vanity metrics? What is, what is he talking about? But you did a great job articulating what vanity metrics were. So if you could, for our listeners, could you please define vanity metrics for us? Vanity metrics in the simplest form are um, metrics that are easy to move and don't translate directly to business outcomes which leads marketing teams to optimize for metrics that don't help their sales team win. Um, and be, and the way, the reason that they optimize for them is because they are easy to move and easy to measure. Yeah. Which so leads you to um, like at the real extreme side, likes, clicks, website visits, you know, shit like that in the sort of like the middle point where most companies fall right now, leads, MQLs, poor definition of pipeline, um, webinar attendees, that type of stuff. Um, and what I'm pushing marketers to move to is qualified pipeline that wins at more than 25%, pipeline velocity, which combines pipeline creation, win rate, sales cycle length, and ACV, all into one metric, which is basically the function of how fast pipeline moves to close one in your business. One of the most important metrics, marketing sourced revenue, cost per qualified opportunity, cost per customer acquisition on a marketing spend. Like those five metrics are the things that I think matter most to marketing teams right now. And then all the shit that happens before that are indicators, not what, not what marketers optimize for. And it's so interesting that, um, when I, um, when you optimize for revenue at the end and then you work backwards, what you realize is that a lot of the things that you optimize for right now are not correlated with revenue. Totally. Leads, website traffic, clicks, whatever else you're looking at, SQLs, meetings, all that stuff mm -hmm. is not correlated. But then what you do is you see, okay, this is all the stuff that's driving revenue. And then you assess and you're like, oh, these are the, the, like, now that I look at it at the end of revenue and a lot of people are like, oh, we optimize for revenue. No, you report on revenue. You don't optimize for it. It's completely different. Um, when you optimize for revenue, you see, oh, these are the things that are actually driving it because we did this crazy thing where we asked our buyers what happened when they were buying, where they learned, where they researched, what happened. And you're like, damn, that's a very different story than what I thought or at least it's a very different story than what I had seen in my dashboards. Maybe it's not different than what I thought, but I couldn't prove it. Now all I did was ask a human being what they did. And now I know. And then you start to backtrack to, Oh, like because we changed how we measure marketing, it then empowers us to change how we execute marketing. And when I'm so like, you can you will never be able to change what you do in marketing until you rethink marketing measurement, KPIs and attribution. Never. So until, and that's why Mark B2B marketing is so stuck right now because nobody's out there giving them a different way to measure marketing or think about attribution, which is what I'm trying to do. For the first half of my career, I was in sales and we used to have a sales pipeline that we had to report on all the time. And so we called it KP lies. And <laughs> there was this really funny story at one point because same kind of thing that you're talking about. 
Like, we got to get more leads, get more leads. We got to fill the pipeline. You know, the top of the funnel is really lean. We got to get some stuff. So we go with a couple of older guys and they're like, hey, next time we go for lunch, you know, they have those, you know, put your business card in here. You get a free lunch. They're like, take a couple cards out of there. And then we report. <laughs> We give those names and numbers and we fill the pipeline <laughs> keeps the manager off our back. Wow. Um, so, but it totally, it, 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 it happens totally today. It, ha- it happens today in pro- product led or other companies that spend a lot of money on Google ads. If you actually look at the people that are submitting, it's complete spam. It's bots. And so the same, like yeah. the same thing as picking a business card out of a thing in a restaurant is the same thing. What B2B companies do right now with Google ads. Yeah. But it also, I imagine like, once you change those metrics, though, then, like, for example, say nobody can pick up uh, cards out of the fishbowl anymore, then your numbers come down. And all of a sudden, you've got all kinds of new questions from management, like, why mm-hmm. are your numbers so low? Or why is your conversion rate so high? But you're like, initial point of contact, you know, you're, you're not doing your job, you're not outreaching, you're not doing that. And I imagine mm-hmm. that's like an interesting play between when you show up to companies, and start saying we're going to do demand gen. Some of the numbers in the front half might come come lower for the sales team, which is okay. Your back end of the of the pipeline is going to get much more efficient. Is that a change management thing that you that you have to work on inside of an organization? This is this is the exact reason why most B two B companies never change. Because if you did want to change to something that actually works today, the metrics that you score your company on your marketing team on would show that it's not working within a month and show that it's not working false positive here that would lead you to say, okay, we got to go back to all the same dumb shit we were doing before. Let's get back to running eBooks and let's go back to cold calling people. And so the, the thing that changes here is not that the sales metrics go down. It's that unnecessary, unproductive sales activities go down. And so the first thing you need to do is you need to look as a business and look at, okay, what are all the things that we're doing in marketing? How many leads do we generate? How many, how many hours of time do our sales team speak, figure out calling, emailing, meeting with buyers that never buy? How much, how much time and money is being wasted on that because of how we measure marketing? And there's an ecosystem that happens here because once you scale sales too far, then you either you need to have some type of trigger or signal so that sales can do sales because you don't have enough organic market demand in the market to actually feed all the reps. You have too many reps, not enough demand, which is what most companies end, end up with. So then your solutions are your the core solution that most companies take on is okay, now we need marketing to collect email addresses because those email addresses will be better than what we pull out of Zoom info. So let's just have marketing do that. And then you end up having an entire revenue team that's doing sales and zero people that are doing any real marketing. And the thing that companies need to understand is that the most impactful thing that your marketing team could do for your company is to do real marketing, not to be sales assistant, not to run lead gen, not to collect email addresses, to do actual marketing that works in 2022. And so there's a a change management component, but when I talk to sales leaders at 100 million ARR companies, the sales leader knows the, the stuff that marketing is doing isn't working. The sales leader knows that the they have too many SDRs calling people that never buy, and it's a waste of time. And they'd rather do something; they'd rather have their team do something else because they want to hit their target. So people know that it's not working. What people don't know is how to fix it. Um, and so I'm giving people a path 
to show here's how you here's how you actually assess your marketing performance against things that matter. Here's how you scrutinize and look at which programs are working and which aren't, ones aren't based on how you do marketing and measure it today. Here's how you benchmark your own performance against, against other people's and you can benchmark it against outbound or anything else that you're doing. Here's new metrics that you could set to change, right? So when we go into companies, what we do is we look at how much pipeline, and when I say pipeline, pipeline that wins at greater than 25%, how much pipeline did you create in the past two quarters? Okay, now I know that you got 20,000 leads during that time, but you got a million in pipeline. And moving forward, what's going to happen is that your leads are going to go down and your pipeline is going to go up. And so we're going to measure the success of these programs on pipeline, not on leads. And that's the only thing that we're looking for. Um, and so this, that's, the, the, that's the change management that goes on. Do people fall back into bad habits? 100%. Yeah. Um, like pe people all over companies are looking for the things that they've felt safe doing for the past 10 years. Um, and, and so there's a, yeah, there, there's definitely a change management that goes on here, but don't be confused. Like the companies that make it to the other side are wildly more successful and have a germ dramatic competitive advantage long-term against their competitors, um, that grows. Yeah. Um, and so I think that people miss on the fact that three years ago, my business did not exist. And three years later, because of how we do marketing, how we think about product and strategy, that almost everyone in the market knows who we are and knows what we think and knows what we believe in, which is a little bit different than if we had 20 SDRs cold calling everyone every day and what the business would look like now. Yeah. And that's just the difference. I can't tell you how many times people told me to fuck off just because I called them on the phone <laughs> <laughs> when I was in my sales days, like... Hey, can I speak to the so-and-so of the marketing department? And then they're like, fuck off, go. And that's not at all a great way to build a company because you don't differentiate yourself in any way. Um, yeah, and, and it's super unproductive talking to a, a bunch of people that don't want to buy right now. Yeah. Have, having your most expensive resource in your entire company, your sales team, talking to people that don't want to buy right now is just th throwing money in a trash can and burning it. And so it'd be way easier to, the way to do it today is to scale sales based on the amount of demand that your marketing team creates or the amount of demand that your company creates, which could be created through customer success, through sales, through marketing, through anything else. How much demand does your company create? And then you scale your sales headcount based on that, as opposed to what companies do, which is they look at their top downs projection. Okay. We need to get to 50 million ARR this year. I guess we're going to need to add 37 more sales reps, which is add 37 more sales reps. We'll split the territories of all the other people in here. And then what they yeah. do is they add significantly more sales reps. They grow at like 5%, not a hundred percent. And they just run into like yeah. creating just more costs and less efficiency um, because of this, like the, the systems thinking is the, the theme in the, in this episode right now is when you think about it in a different way, you end up with an entirely new way to look at the, the entire growth plan. Yeah. Chris, we got about two minutes or so before you, I know you have to head out. So, um, uh, do you got one more? Well, I'm, uh, I really, I would, I think my last question here, uh, cause you covered 
a lot of great topics. And I think for us as, as marketers in, in various fields right now, it's, it's, it's super refreshing to, to kind of hear that really raw in this format, like we don't need to complicate marketing. I would love to know, in your opinion, what are the most exciting opportunities for marketers this year? I think the most exciting, um, and it's interesting because some of, um, I'm going to back up a little bit because I would have initially communicated what are the most exciting opportunities for me. And the thing that I recognize is that we are several years ahead of the rest of the market. And so I will uh, back out a little bit. I think the most effective opportunities for marketers today, number one, is a community that you built that is not your product user group. It's a built around a getting a bunch of like-minded people together to get better professionally that revolves around something that your company does. Um, so I think community is a huge one. There's almost zero companies that will have success building a community the way that they measure marketing right now. But community is a huge one. I think marketing with video con video and audio content in long form is huge, especially as your deal sizes get larger. That uh, long form audio and video content is massive. Um, I believe that uh, that's social, both paid and organic, is still a huge opportunity. If you get out of the mindset of organic social is our PR channel where we push, push out our press releases and paid social is where we run lead gen to get people to download content. If you can get out of that mindset and look at this, of we can directly communicate with all of our the entire buying group at every single one of our accounts every single day, then you, I think that that's, that's a powerful weapon that a lot of B2B marketers could use if they brought the right mindset to it. Um, I think those are, are three big ones. And then the last one that I'll put, which is sort of like an overarching, you almost need it for any of those three things to work that mar some, marketing, some marketing teams don't have, is you need subject matter expertise. Good luck creating content for a CFO with a bunch of people that have never been a finance manager before, worked in a finance department. Good luck. What they're going to do is they're going to go look at a bunch of blogs and they're going to copy and paste one blog into their own blog. And so you need, in order to have a content strategy that works today in B2B, you need to have expertise that helps people be better. And I think that's a big one that's missing. And then the last one, and this is, uh, I'm, it's so funny. I've started with tactics and now I'm backing it out to fundamentals. Um, is if you are on your, if you're doing marketing and you don't haven't, haven't talked to a customer or a, a person that could be your customer, let's phrase it at that. Ideally people that don't pay you right now and you haven't done that in the past two weeks, then something's wrong. You got to be actively communicating to collect market research with qualitative insights with people that could buy your product every week. Otherwise, you don't have the insights about what to talk about, about where to, where to share it, about what questions people are asking, about whether or not it's resonating. And you're just guessing and throwing stuff out there based on whatever like pain point product roadmap that you have. Mm -hmm. And so community, customer insights. Um, what else did I talk through? So organic video. and paid social, video oh, content. Oh. What was the last one? Um, Communication with product. Yeah. Expertise. Yeah. Expertise. I think those are five really strong opportunities for marketing right now. So not optimizing all your campaigns towards impressions, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, but like, um, if, if you know that you've already talked to 
people that could buy your product, you validated messaging about how it works on a one-to-one setting with five or 10 potential buyers. And then you repackage that messaging into a paid social campaign and you deliver it at scale to all your accounts. I think that impressions might actually be a good metric to look at the success of that campaign against. Um, and so there's uh, there, there's nuances in all of this, but it's all it all revolves back to what is your mindset and what is your strategy. Yeah, Chris, thanks so much for your time. How can people find out more about you and Refine Labs and the podcast and everything else? <sighs> Yeah, so feel free if you're interested in learning more about Refine Labs, you can visit refinelabs.com. There's uh there's links in there where you can attend our live events called Demand Gen Live or other keynotes that we do on mark B2B marketing and strategy and go to market. Um, you can follow our podcast called State of Demand Gen. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And feel free to uh follow me on LinkedIn, uh Chris Walker, and also on Twitter, Chris Walker171. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. This is just awesome conversation. So good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it was a blast to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. And now, the post-pod discussion with Pete and Mark. Yeah, he's... I I really... It's interesting. I, I really like his approach. Like, it's... He's smart, articulate, thoughtful... I love that he challenges the status quo um, and just sort of looking, well, not sort of, absolutely looking for better way to do things. I, I like that. You know what? I think what's interesting is I think a lot of marketers will naturally have this, this idea or this aspiration to really be thought leaders, disruptors, and, and kind of really do things differently than what's already been done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you find organizations that will kind of recruit outside of their own industries because of that mindset sometimes that is missing. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, the problem is still internal. I think the problem still lies within the way orgs are created, the way mm-hmm. specific you know, leadership styles or the, 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 uh, the leadership, um, sometimes it could be at the VP level, it could be like a senior a executive, the hierarchy just creates this sometimes these environments that don't allow for marketers to really do what they can do. And mm-hmm. it creates this almost, um, I don't know what the right word is here, but it creates this, uh, this environment that can I test? Yeah. We, we talk about test and learn culture, but when I do test, I either get my hand slapped or it's not actually being uh, acknowledged or, and it, I think it forces marketers to go back to, well, hey, what worked in the past? Or sorry, what was the perception that worked in the past? Let's make sure that's there always mm-hmm. so we get our executives off our backs. Mm-hmm. And then focus on our smaller, that 10% of our budget on some of that test and learn. And we'll only bring it up when we've seen success. But mm-hmm. that's, that can't be healthy. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, a few things that you, you just mentioned that, uh, I'm thinking about one is I took this organic chemistry class in university called structure and function of organic chemistry. I think I couldn't tell you the first thing about the class other than the title, which is structure and function. And <laughs> the only, it's really the only thing I remember about that class. But I think about that all the time in business. And we were talking about the structure. And when Chris was talking about, um, you know, the, the disconnect between different departments 
and and that marketing is really just promotions in some cases. I think you do need the structure of a centralized strategic oversight or visionary to do the things like diagnosing the market, to do the things like building out a segmentation map so that you have a clear understanding of where there's opportunities within the market. And then to also coordinate the rest of the departments and teams so that you've got clarity in terms of, okay, now here's the particular target audience that we're going after and we're not going after these groups. And now what do you guys need in your own streams or uh, um, I'm saying guys, but guys or girls need in your own streams uh, and your own departments to support this overall strategy. I think that's a pretty, that was a big aha for me is hearing that part. I know in one of our previous lives, we had that very clear, not only vision, but that targeting, you know, when we were, especially in the retail landscape, when we were, you know, targeting the high-end achievers, um, that, that was one of the, the first times in my career where you can, you could sense that, you know what, no, we know who it is that we want to speak to. And that's where we're going to focus. You know, I know internally at the time we had this whole, we're targeting the sweat, sweat, motherfucker sweat. And it, it was fascinating that, you know, that shift in mindset actually created a culture of innovation, a culture of disruption, which became so conducive and so intoxicating all at the same time that I think it starts by doing that quality of research that Chris was talking about. Like how often are companies going out there and actually researching what their consumer now looks like? The pandemic disrupted everything. Has anyone done new analysis? Are we going back to that old playbook that we had in 2019 and we keep reminiscing about that state as it being an idealistic state, but the consumer in the last two years is not the same. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And there's um, the idea of like these invisible forces shaping your decision-making that you sometimes don't even realize are there. So for example, the his when Chris was talking about um, in 2017, the way we did things was all, all about capturing leads because you couldn't get them on your own. So that was like a big thing for marketing or, or contact names. And that's the way that marketing is structured. So to your point, there's a lot that's changed since COVID started in the last two years. And there's a whole bunch of assumptions that underpin the choices we make and the way we operate and the way that businesses are run and, and, and how we lead people and all those kinds of things how we go to market and there, there's a really good chance that they're not all true today. Some of them may still be true. And so that's fine. But the ones that aren't true, if you don't like go back and check your assumptions of how you created the strategy, then, then I think you're, you're missing a huge opportunity and you could be going down the wrong path. You know, it, I couldn't agree more. The idea of, measurement, holistic strategy. Again, we, we talk about structure and we, you know, I'm sure it's not nuanced where marketing disciplines and organizations sometimes are three different teams, four different teams, all doing a part of marketing, right? And there's, you know, and I know you and I are both doing uh, our uh, MBA right now. And when we're going through kind of org structures and, and whatnot, and you kind of start understanding what, that depends on where you are in, a, in your life cycle of your company. Sometimes there's a centralization of function where sometimes there's a decentralization of function. 
And usually it's decentralized as things start to really grow. I would argue that you have to reach a scale. Maybe it's the apples of the world, the Nikes of the world, where you have a whole bunch of SBUs in different regions where you can really look at that decentralization of, say, something like marketing. You don't need to go down that decentralization of marketing as a function as long as you still have a very, very specific goal and maybe isn't, you know, regionalized. And I think sometimes companies go down this path of that decentralization is too soon. And that creates murkiness, that creates the ambiguity, and that creates the, who who are we targeting again? Who, who's that, who are we leaning? Are we waiting for our data science team to tell us? Are we waiting? Who am I going to look at my own research based on, the information that I have as a digital marketer, who's making that decision? Yeah. Yeah. And one other thought um, to build on that would be like, oftentimes, especially with you just mentioned data science, it just made me think of it. And Chris talked about this too, but I mean, you're using a lot of data that's past tense to project, <laughs> to make analysis and optimizations and so on and so forth. Um, and unless you look up from the data, you're not actually going to see the changes that are coming that are maybe less obvious in the data because they're only looking backwards, but more obvious if you just start trying to interpret the qualitative things that are out there, that it can't be so rigidly defined by the quantitative information. So it's a kind of interesting thing because you do it. So on one, one hand, you need to look back and assume stability and make you know, well-informed decisions. But on the other hand, you also have to make some educated guesses about what is coming next and, and keep an eye on both sort of uh, the front and the rear of the car. Um, I, I, you'll remember this, but I, one of our old VPs would always say, you can't drive forward when you're looking in the rear view mirror. Totally. Right. And it, it was a, it was a something to that effect mind you. But I think that was so incredibly powerful because I think at times, um, even today, we're talking about a post, well, maybe we're still kind of going through recovery and a lot of industries have suffered in, in this COVID state. But you still find that many organizations are leaning on the metrics that existed back in that state, the 2019, the 2018. So everything that you're doing today is based on what happened in 2019 without focusing on today. Where are we actually seeing traction right now without having to measure our performance against a comp, you know, and being that comp mindset that, you know, that a lot of organizations naturally uh, do. And I think it, it does, it actually lends itself well to what Chris was talking about is, do you just throw up that playbook, man? Revisit it, think about it top down, do your qualitative research, understand how people are either engaging with your content, um, how they're, you know, where's the friction in their, in the, in, in their consumer decision journey, like for every product and service, it's going to be different, but taking that time and really kind of decoupling from the moment that someone you generate revenue and back that up, then that changes and opens your eyes and well, how you should be optimizing your campaigns, whether are those metrics that you're going to leverage. And I think that's what Chris did a great job in kind of articulating and really kind of showing that marketing should be held to revenue as a KPI, 100%. And I don't care if that's B2B, B2C, 
I think holistically, and we have to get away from just saying, hey, we're just building brand awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, measure that then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's lots of that's lots of great stuff that he had. I can't wait for more of these with you, B. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, buddy. This was great. 